tell you what, what we have experienced so far in this gathering, it's far better than any Super Bowl. <laughs> um, hey, thank you. Some of you feel the same way I do. Just a couple of you, huh? No, great to be with you guys. Uh, before we dive into our time of teaching, uh, just one quick announcement. We have a marriage retreat coming up. It's uh, February 23 and 24. It's at Crossroads. And let me just tell you who this marriage retreat is for. Uh, It's for everyone who's married. Because we're treating this retreat a little bit like, uh, you know, baseball is going to be starting up soon. And uh, before every season, they have spring training, right? And I don't know about you, but my marriage needs spring training every year. And so the way that we're going to do this retreat um, it's all going to be done in-house. Libby and I are going to be doing Friday night. Uh, the Teslas, um, who run our marriage ministry, are going to be doing it Saturday morning. And the Goodriches, Aaron, who does so much counseling for our church, uh, they're going to do it uh, Saturday afternoon. It's for everyone. Uh, if you're engaged, it's for you. If you're newly married, it's for you. If you've been married for Bruce Cheadle, it's for you. You and Pat. <laughs> How many years, Bruce? beautiful. I mean, for all of us. So, um, all right. With that being said, too, anybody? Nope, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask who's doing it. Torah portions. Um, Let's stay the course. Uh, If you haven't started, it's not too late to start. And I'll tell you how God put this on my heart for us to just read through the Bible in this way this year. I developed a horrible habit. Every morning, first thing I would do, open my computer and go to the news. (laughs) The news. And I I, I did this for a long time, and I got sick of it. And the Lord confronted me and said, no, you are going to start your day as a hungry person feasting on my word. And I'm not saying that to say I'm good or better than anybody, but that is a great way to start the day. And so that's what this is really hoping to serve us in. Okay, with that being said, let's feast. Um, We're looking at the life of Paul. And I'm not going to give you a whole introduction because the further we go through this, uh, the longer it's going to take. But we are now to the point where Paul sets out on his second missionary journey. And turn in your Bibles to Acts 16. If you have a Bible like mine, I didn't even know this until last week when Nate pointed this out, that there's two different page numbers. So the Bible that I have, page number 898, uh, we love to stand for the Word of God. Let's stand if we can, or at least in our hearts. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. Paul and his companions. Anybody know who his companions are? Silas, Timothy, first thing Paul does on this second missionary journey is he goes to Lystra to seek out Timothy and says, Timothy, come follow me. Imagine how excited Timothy must be to be a part of this adventure. Who else? Probably Luke. Luke is actually the writer of Acts. Uh, So Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, They tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. 
So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Troas, uh, scholars think, is ancient Troy, same site. Uh, you know, the movie Troy. Uh, during the night, Paul had a vision in this place of a man from Macedonia standing, begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got up at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea. We sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi. Now listen to this description. To Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate over to the river where we expected to find a synagogue. They didn't find a synagogue. Uh, instead, they found a place of prayer. Um, what's the difference? Well, a synagogue requires 10 Jewish men to be present. There are no men, except for Paul and his, his, his cadre. So, it's called a place of prayer. We sat down, we began to speak to the women who had gathered there, and one of them listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was also a God-fearer. Remember, that's a technical term. Um, it's those, those Greeks who are attracted to the Jewish God and, and uh, convert to Judaism. The Lord opened her heart to respond. In fact, that word conveys what you guys just sung. To make her hungry. The Lord opened her heart to make her hungry to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, of course, he said, of course, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. And once when we were going to the place of prayer, uh, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money from her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept doing this for many days. Such an amazing verse, this next one. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are throwing our city into chaos by advocating customs that are different than the Romans. This is God's word. You can be seated. So this text begins with with Paul really wanting to take the gospel to Asia. And a lot of us think of Asia in in terms of uh, our geography today, but the province of Asia is is very different in the first century. Let me just show you a PowerPoint so you can see this a little bit. Asia is uh, that red chunk in what is today uh, modern Turkey. You can see it, right? Modern Turkey today is what? What religion? It's, it's Muslim, okay? But in the first century, it's all Greek for the most part. 
And that province of Asia, that is prime real estate. Uh, That is um, probably the most influential and prosperous province or state in the Roman Empire. Probably a lot like our East Coast today. I mean, all the the, the cities um, that John writes to in Revelation are in that province. Uh, you have some, some mega cities like Ephesus and Pergamum and Miletus, which are kind of like the, uh, the New York, the Philadelphia, and the Boston of its day. And this is all part of Paul's strategy. Like Paul wants to get to the big city, to those urban centers, because he believes that if we can reach the city, we can reach the culture and then reach the world. But every time he tries to go to Asia, God closes the door. And and then he goes to the next best thing, to Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit closes that door. So then Paul travels up to Mysia because he's trying to get as close to Asia as he can without actually going into Asia. But see, God has a different plan for Paul. And God is going to direct Paul through what? The Holy Spirit. Specifically through what? A vision, a dream. And in this dream, this man from Macedonia, Macedonia, by the way, is the orange one uh, tucked up there in the corner, uh, that district, and, and this man from Macedonia shows up in Paul's dream begging Paul, please come and help us. And Paul knows immediately, God has just spoken to me. And so immediately, Uh, they get into a boat and set sail for Macedonia. Now, why do I say all this? Well, it's in our text, first of all. But what's the takeaway? Because I get a lot of people sometimes that that ask uh, things like, uh, can God speak to me this way? Or why doesn't God speak to me this way? Or then they ask it from the other extreme of that. Well, they don't even ask it. They declare it. That, that every dream they, they have, it's God speaking to them. And first, we, we need to conclude absolutely God can speak to us this way. And God does speak in, in this way. I remember years ago, I met this pastor from India. I mean, I, I, I just, I sat across the table, had dinner with him. And over the course of two hours, literally, I think my, my, my jaw was just literally hitting the table. I couldn't believe what he was telling me. First of all, uh, described his, his teenage years, how he was just seeking God with everything he had. He, he wanted to know the true God, because in, in India there are millions of gods. And, and he would do just all these extreme things. One of the things that I remember he did um, is that he would literally lay in the, in the river... Uh, that passed by his house uh, with, with, a, with a reed by which he could breathe. And, and f- throughout the whole day, he would just lay in that river, breathing through that reed, just saying, God, would you show yourself to me? I want to know you. And one day, he said, when he got out of that river, a man said, you need to go home because God is going to give you something. And he was confused, but... He went home, and while he was home, someone came and knocked on his door, and they gave him a book. And that book happened to be a Bible in his language. 
And he had never heard of, of, of any of this stuff before. He had never heard of Jesus. But when he got done reading the book, he said he gave his heart to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And that man went on to plant 100 churches in India. Like, do you believe that? Of course you believe that. I mean, God works. And, and, and a lot of times, though, in, in, our, in our American culture, we like to turn the dream into, into something that, that's for us and for our comfort and for our prosperity. Um, but, but the dream is not so much for Paul. It is, it's there to, to serve the gospel. Because what God has in Paul is this guy who's living his life on mission for the cause of Christ. And God, of course, is going to shepherd that person. He's going to guide that part person. And if he needs to speak in a vision, in a dream, to get Paul not to go to Asia, but to the place where God wants him to go, he'll do some pretty crazy things. Beautiful things. But I think the bigger question here for us is this. Who is your man from Macedonia? Who is it that's saying to you, please, come, help me, help us? And we got a good example of it this morning uh, from Kurt Dillinger. We know what his man from Macedonia is. That's like a burden on his heart. Listen, if we are followers of Christ, we are all going to have a person or a a people group or or, or, uh, a group of people who who we're burdened for, whose lives are screaming at us, I need help. And our lives are moving toward them with the help of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope you're not drawing a blank right now. I, I, I hope people and, 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 and causes and, and people groups are coming to your mind right now. So once Paul sets sail, uh, gets in Macedonia, uh, Paul does what Paul does. Verse 12 says Paul goes to its leading city. That leading city in Macedonia is Philippi. Now I think there's a few things that we need to know about Philippi. Philippi was founded by Philip of Macedon. That's why it has the name Philippi. Who, who's Philip of Macedon? Does anybody know? Any? Alexander the Great's father. Now just stop and think about this. Uh, Alexander's great empire begins... In this place, I mean, it's in this place that he raises up his armies and and they go and conquer the whole eastern world, which includes Egypt, it includes Persia, it includes Babylon, it goes all the way to India. And remember, Alexander the Great, he's not just uh, conquering the eastern world, but he's evangelizing it. He's indoctrinating it in, in, in the gospel of Hellenism. And the way that he's doing this is as he's conquering, he's planting cities. And in these cities, he is adorning these cities with with all the Greek institutions from the Greek spa to the theater to the stadium uh, to the marketplace. uh, All these wonderful things 
uh, making for a great city to proclaim a Greek worldview, uh, which we call Hellenism, which in his mind to save, to save this world. Again, Hellenism, let's just, um, we've talked about this before, but Hellenism is a worldview that's all about big, about being the best, about being the strongest, the richest, the prettiest, the smartest. It's a religion because every idea, every ideology is a religion. It's, It's a religion that says life is all about me. It's all about my comfort. It's about my pleasure. It's about my rights. It's about my prosperity. It's about making a name for myself. It's all about me, me, me. I think we know this worldview very well. Hellenism has never been more alive than it is today in our part of the world. And that's what you guys are going to be watching on TV tonight when you watch the Super Bowl. You are going to see Hellenism in all its splendor. And we all know, too, though, that underneath all its splendor is uh, a lot of roadkill, a lot of wounded, a lot of hurting. Because what Hellenism, at the end of the day, does is it strips people of their, of their dignity, it strips them of their worth, it, it replaces relationship and community with individualism, and this individual uh, gets taken to the extreme, which which leads to isolationism and, and narcissism. And, and at the end of the day, it just leaves a bunch of broken, hurting people. I mean, think about that man from Macedonia. Please, come, help us. We're desperate. And if you follow the history books, after Greece will come Rome, and, and the only thing that Rome will do with Hellenism is put it on steroids, essentially. Um, it's going to supersize everything. Um, and, and what Rome is going to do with Philippi is uh, something very strategic to Rome. It's, it, as our text said, it, it's going to become a Roman colony. In other words, it's going to be a miniature Rome. They're going to fill it with Latin-speaking Romans. They're going to fill it with all the glories of, of, of uh, the city of Rome. Why? For the simple person... A purpose that this outpost city would preach the gospel of Rome. And then to heighten the status of this city, each person in this city is given Roman citizenship, which is huge status in that day. It doesn't just make a person elite, but that makes this whole city elite. Now, why does God want Paul in this place? Not only is it the home to Alexander the Great, not only is it the epicenter of Hellenism, but Paul goes right into the region's leading city, Philippi, that exists to preach the gospel of Rome, and Paul comes with his gospel, the gospel of Christ, and he's going to plant his little mini colony in that colony that belongs to God. He preaches God's gospel. And you have to know there is going to be a collision. I mean, think about this. If, if you know the gospel of Rome, the gospel of Hellenism, the gospel of Christ, I mean, these gospels promise peace, but, 
but they promise peace through a whole different means. One through a king who conquers and dominates, the other through a king who is conquered. Caesar says, your life for me. Christ says, my life poured out for you. And think about how, how the peace of Christ comes into our lives. It's, it's so different than the way that the peace, uh, the Roman peace comes into a person's life. It's not by going up. It's by going down. It's not by becoming big. It's by becoming small. It's not by becoming strong and mighty and prosperous. But it's, it's through weakness and, 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 and suffering. It's, it, it, it's not by by demanding our rights and getting our rights, but it's by giving up our rights. It's not by somehow achieving this great life, but it's by actually giving up our life for the sake of others. There's going to be a collision. But what I want to ask right now to my own heart, and I want to ask it to you, what kingdom do we belong to? What kingdom are we living for? Jesus said, seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, my path. Do you look like a Hellenist? Or do you look like a Christ follower? That's all we have to do. We just have to look at our life. And our life will tell us who we're following, what path we're on. Are we going up? Are we going down? Are we living to become big and to get? Or are we living life to become little and to give away? Now what's awesome is that a church is going to be born in Philippi. And Paul, uh, years later, is going to write a letter to them. That's why we have the letter of Philippians in our Bible. Uh, you ought to read Philippians this week. I mean, either I, if you don't read Philippians this week, that's on me. I didn't create enough interest. <laughs> I'll take that one. But look at what Paul says in, in, in Philippians 3, verse 18. By the way, of course, these chapter and verse numbers weren't there. That's what we've done to this letter. Um, but this was just a letter. And Paul's writing to them. He says, for I, for As I have often told you before, and now tell you even with tears in my eyes, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Probably as good Hellenists, good Romans. Because look what he says next. He says, Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But then he says, but our citizenship is in heaven as we eagerly await a savior there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Listen to what he's saying to them. People who have the status of Roman citizenship. He's like, no more. That's not your citizenship. You're citizens that belong to God. That's your status. That's who you are. That's who you belong to. And, and, and it's almost as if you take this, uh, this, this metaphor even further. If, if Philippi is this Roman colony that exists to preach the gospel of Rome, when Paul says your citizenship is in heaven, you belong to him. You're no longer to think of yourself as Roman. You are now to think of yourself as Christian, as someone who belongs to God. But you are, are, are a colony in and of yourself. 
to preach that gospel to this colony in Philippi. I could stop the whole sermon right now and just apply this. We are not Americans. And we don't have to get so uptight about this thing going on in America right now, about does America need to return to the America of old, or does it need to move to this new idea of what America should be? We're Christ followers. And we are a mini colony that gets planted in this colony of Grand Rapids to be Christ and to preach Christ. And I'll tell you, uh, there's going to be massive confrontation. I mean, we see it in the text. We see it in verses 20 and 21. They brought Paul uh, and his cadre before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. They're throwing our city into chaos by advocating a whole different way of life, a different ideology than, than the Romans. And this is where I just asked the question, where's, where's, where's the confrontation today? <laughs> our world's never been so Hellenized. Our, our, our world has never been so Roman. Is there confrontation? You get me thrown before the magistrates? Is it because we're just isolated and we've escaped the bad, awful world? Or is it because our message has just become PC? I agree with that. That's ooh. <laughs> I don't know. I love this church. I love where God put this church. I love the people of this church. And I love how God is making us into a mini colony that belongs to him. And that is bringing his gospel to a world like Macedonia that's saying, please help us. Now what you have in Acts 16, the rest of this chapter, is how the gospel takes root in Philippi. And it takes root in in, in people's hearts. That's how the gospel uh, takes root. In fact, uh, Acts 16 gives us three dramatic conversions to Christ. Um, we're going to look at the first two. The first two today and then the next one uh, next week. Um, but the first two are, are women. One has a name. Her name is Lydia. The other is just described as a slave. And on appearances of things, these women, women could not be more different from each other. Because look at verse 14, it says about Lydia that she's a dealer of purple cloth. Now, that dealer of purple cloth might not mean anything to us, but what if I said that she was a dealer in gold? Because what you need to know is that uh, purple cloth, that dye that made it and produced it in the first century was the most precious resource in that world. One ounce of it was worth thousands upon thousands of dollars. On top of that, the color purple could only be worn by the emperor, who a lot of times just had a purple robe, 
could be worn by the senators. They could just have a purple sash that went along their uh, toga. Or by the highest rank of person in the Roman Empire called an equestrian, or a better term for that, because you're thinking someone who rides horses, would be a knight. And to be a knight in the Roman Empire, you had to prove, not through your net worth, but through cash on hand uh, status. And that had to be cash on hand in millions of dollars. So this is Lydia. Not only is she wealthy, but the people that she runs with are, are some of the richest people in the world. I mean, she is at the very top of, of the food chain. And I think we even see this in the text where it says she's from Lydia, yet she has a second home in Philippi. That might be like saying, you know, someone has a home in Grand, Grand Rapids, but then they have a penthouse down in Miami. Now, the slave girl is on the complete other end of the spectrum. That's what she is. She's a slave. She doesn't have a penny to her name. Not only that, but she's exploited to make other people wealthy. But I want us to even see further than this. She's not just a slave to human masters. She is a slave to far worse to those dark realities, the dark forces of the spiritual world. She's a slave and The reason I know that is because of verse 16. It says, we met a girl with a spirit by which to predict the future. This literally reads in the text, it says, we met a girl with the spirit of a python. Yes, a snake. Or more literally, we met a pythoness or a pythia. Now, a pythia was a, a priestess from the temple of Apollo in Delphi. And again, this means very little to us, uh, but there's a reason why this was my first stop uh, when we just did this um, walking the steps of Paul tour this last summer is because Delphi, what Delphi is to the Greek and Roman is what Jerusalem is to the Jew. It is the center of the universe. They call Delphi, this city, uh, the Axis Mundi. It's it's, it's the world's or the earth's navel where heaven and earth meet. And it's at this place where Apollo killed the python that guarded this cave that actually was the actual sacred space of uh, uh, the Axis Mundi and instead built a temple. And Apollo is the god of wisdom and prophecy And so for literally over a thousand years, Greeks and Romans would travel to what they thought was the center of the world, where heaven and earth met, to get a prophecy to predict their future. Apollo, tell me, am I supposed to take this job? Apollo, tell me, are we supposed to go to war? Apollo, tell me, am I going to get pregnant? Apollo, tell me, am I supposed to marry this person? And see, the, the, the mechanics of this were all done through the Pythia. Uh, the, the Pythia would be sitting on a tripod. I don't know if they got the PowerPoint uh, picture of this, but she would be sitting on, on a tripod in the dark recesses of a temple, uh, actually where there was a crack in the ground, a fissure, where all these gases came out. So she was always high. 
and in this ecstatic state, just sitting there uttering these prophecies. And these, 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 the way a person would become a Pythia, uh, uh, they would be sold to the temple as a slave, as a young girl. Immediately, they would be uh, induced with, with opiates, um, hallucinogenic drugs. Uh, they would be chronically high, and they would be trained into this profession. That's this girl. She has a spirit of the, of the Pythia. It's a demonic enterprise. In fact, I don't even think it's a hoax. Why would people for a thousand years come to this place to get the, the word from Apollo uh, through this priestess? It worked. And the reason it worked is because it was demonic. And so this girl is manic. She's crazy. She's helpless. She's a slave. You have two very different people in this woman and Lydia from completely different walks of life who probably never would have crossed paths. They'd never be together for any reason because where they do life is so different. How they do life is so different. At best, they would ignore ignore each other and at worst, they probably despise each other. But listen, this is just the surface. Because Lydia doesn't have it all put together. She is empty. And why do I say this? Uh, Hey, even though she's the successful, accomplished businesswoman, she's still seeking. Verse 14 says she's a God-fearer. And this is a technical term, as as we've learned, for a Gentile who who comes to this place of, of need and emptiness and embraces the Jewish God, Yahweh. And she now lives her life according to Torah. So you have to understand, at some point, this Gentile left her roots for the Jewish God, for the Jewish way of life, and, and for her to, to have to do that. There's emptiness in her life. There's something that needs to be filled. Do you know this person? Who on the outside, it's it, it just, wow, they have life by the tail. They, they're at the top. They, they live a big life in, in, in a big world. They're successful. They're prosperous. I'm going to tell you what. The Lydias of the world are oftentimes the most empty people in the world. And I'll tell you why. It's because they actually get large doses of what their deceitful heart thinks they need to have in order to be happy. Only to find out that in getting it all, it didn't deliver. And so they try to get more and still more and, and maybe it's over here. Maybe if I try this and, and, and at times it leads to boredom. At other times it leads to depression and sometimes people can just be tormented with the despair that Solomon talks about. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. 
In fact, I think our whole culture today is, is, is Lydia. We are experiencing right now in our culture an emptiness. Never has a culture had so much, but never has a culture at the same time been so empty. And we just keep indulging. And we have so many means to indulge and places to indulge. So we just indulge more and still more. And then we get to a place where the indulgence isn't satisfying. So then we start to medicate the boredom. We medicate the depression. We medicate the despair. Not knowing that the human heart has been created to be to sing what we sung this morning. We're hungry. We're hungry for more of you. Hungry. We're desperate for Jesus. Well, the slave girl, on the other hand, I mean, she's exactly what you see. We see her emptiness a thousand miles away. And we know it's so much more than emptiness for her, too. It's, it, it's brokenness at such a deep level. And here she is. She's following Paul. And, and she's yelling out, these, these guys are servants of the Most High God. And, and verse 19 tells us that this literally goes on for days. And Paul starts to realize that, that what is following behind him is not just a girl, but it's a girl who's gripped in evil, who's gripped in the demonic, who's tormented by all of this stuff, whose life is out of control. And Paul finally says, enough! And he looks at that bad master and says, get out. And then he introduces this girl to the true master, Jesus Christ. And in a moment, in a moment, she's free! (laughs) She's free. She's free from her human owners. She's free from the spiritual forces that have run her life for a long time. She's free from her addiction to opiates. She is, she's free. Do you know this girl? I'm going to tell you something. This girl is not just walking the streets somewhere. This girl is walking the halls of our high schools She is in college, and it's not just a a she, it is a he. They're in our churches. And they're not just young. And their lives are spinning out of control. They're addicts to all different kinds of things. Opening the door to the, the spiritual forces to attach themselves to that addiction and to totally ruin a life whether it's alcohol or drugs, pornography, money, gambling, the list goes on and on. And you know it. But you know what these two ladies have in common? God's pursuing them. And it's also cool to see the different way in in, in which God pursues them. I mean, for, for, for Lydia, God comes to her through Paul preaching a sermon to her. Like any devout Jew on Shabbat, she goes to synagogue. At synagogue, she doesn't know it, that, but here uh, this, this, 
this student of Gamaliel, this Harvard grad, is going to show up that day. He's going to open up the book, and he's going to explain. I can see it. He's going to explain the whole story in light of Christ. And he's going to look at her, and he's going to say, Lydia, do you see what Christ has done for you? Because what Paul holds in his hand, it's what you and I hold in our hand. It, 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 it's the key to unlock this woman's heart. He holds the very power of God to open her heart, to open her heart to God. And that's exactly what verse 14 says. The Lord opened her heart because that key of God's word and her, his spirit uh, unlocks that door. Christ enters her and for the first time she sees the one for who she was made. God reaches people this way. Because this book is alive. This book is, is God's book. It, it's, it's where God has placed his Christ. His presence lives here. It's like uh, uh, religious Jews. Their, their approach to the book. They, they think of this as the holy of holies. Or as the Bible says about itself, these are the very oracles of God. We don't have to travel a long way to a city and and pay a large sum of money to get a few sentences from the oracle, from the Pythia. God gave us this. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm going to preach it because it is salvation. It's the power of God. But then you have the slave girl. Does Paul preach a sermon to her? Ah, he doesn't. Because he knows what's going on with her. He knows that she is a slave to this dark master. So verse 18, he confronts that dark master and introduces her to her true master, Jesus Christ. And that power of God in that moment breaks into her life and sets her free. God reaches people this way. But here's what I have found. I have found that so many churches are either all about the word, the word, the word, minus the spirit, or they're all about the power of the spirit, minus the word. And I'm telling you, when we do either one of these things, we're just cutting ourselves off at the knees. I want to be a person, a pastor. I want to be a church that is all about the word of God. That we, like we sang today, that we're hungry. That we're hungry for God's manna. That we're going to actually take the time, whether it's in the morning or whether it's noon, but every single day, we're going to eat this. We're going to digest it so it gets in us. And we live it, and we love it, and we pray it, and we teach it, and most importantly, we walk it, and we proclaim it. But I also want to be a church that's all about the Spirit. The power of the Spirit, the, the Spirit of Christ. Otherwise, this just becomes dead. I'll never forget years ago when Bruce Cheadle told me, he said, I never leave my house without saying, Holy Spirit, would you fill me to the top of my head, to the soles of my feet. And as much as I can remember that, I pray that. I want that for our church. 
so cool, though. These women are, women are not just brought to God, but they're brought to each other. Can you see Lydia just taking this little girl under her wing? Because here's the deal. Now in Christ, this slave girl and Lydia are family. <laughs> they're a family. Just like we're family. In fact, I'll even push this further. They're, they're, they're equals. All the labels, all the price tags that, that Romans placed on people fall off when we're in Christ. All the divisions, all the levels of status are now gone. And it's not just because now that we're in Christ, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is not a supposed to. This is what the power of the cross does when it comes into a person's life. And I'll tell you just real simply how the cross does this to a person. Because the cross tells us two very important things about ourselves. It tells us that we are that lost. We are that sinful. We are that bad. That the God of the universe, in order to save us and rescue us, had to do this. Do you know that you're that, you're that lost? Do you know that you're actually that bad? So how dare we ever think that we are better than anyone? I don't care who it is. I don't care if they're at the bottom of the food chain. I don't care if, if they're Wicked upon wicked, apart from God in his grace in her life. It's us. The cross also tells us that God did this because he loves us that much. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. And what is that joy that was set before Christ as he's hanging on the cross? It's us. He died because we're worth that much to him. Because he loves us that much. That all the suffering, all the agony, the death, the hell. It was, it was joy for Jesus to do. Because he loves us. And see, this is how the cross, when it comes into a person's life, it simultaneously it humbles us to the ground and exalts us to the skies. Where Lydia can look at that slave girl and say, I'm no better than you because you're me. And the slave girl can look at Lydia and all her wealth and the big shot she is and say, in Christ, I'm far worth more than anything she has. It's the power of the cross. Only the cross. See, this is how a, a mini colony of Christ followers in a colony in, in Rome, Philippi, can turn the whole thing on its head and be this potent force. That's how we can be a potent, potent force in our world. Does this power come into your life? Are you Lydia today? On the outside, everything looks so good, but on the inside, you are utterly empty. Tom Brady, uh, 10 years ago, 60 Minutes interview, was asked, Tom, is this all there is? That question, for some reason, just rocked him. And he sat there and he reflected on it for a while, and then he just said, there has to be more. And I just heard him say just the other day, he's like, I got to win at least two more Super Bowls. 
I get two more. Augustine said it so well. He said, God has made us for himself and our souls are restless until they rest in him. Or maybe you're the slave girl this morning. Listen, we all have a master, something that owns us, that defines us, something that we've given our life to, thinking that if if we get it, it will help us, it will protect us, it's going to make us happy, it's going to give us an identity, it's going to make us uh, worth something. Listen, whatever that master is, these false masters can never save us, they don't love us, in the end they're going to hurt us and they're going to eventually destroy us. Jesus said, come to me and you'll be free. Come to him. Come back to him. Let's pray. God, like the Macedonia man, we too say, God, help us. And for some this morning, God, they could be coming to you for the first time. But for others, Lord, we just keep coming back to you. We get off track, but we come back. We get off track, but we come back. Thank you. Thank you that you always receive us. Pray for us. Mr. Wozniak, would you pray for us? Father, it is the power of Christ. That verse that no one can pluck me out of your hand just resonates with me. May that give us encouragement to be bold. May even be like Lydia, as we heard today, about saying, will you... Will you come and join me at my house? Father, there are people in our path as we walk forward, even tonight at a Super Bowl party, or whether it's this week at work or in the community. Father, I pray that we would have eyes, that we would have courage, that we would speak with boldness about who you are and what you mean to us. Journey with us, Father, as Rod and others have said. May today be a launching pad into what you have us for this week. We lift this up in your name. Amen.